Good morning. Hope you're enjoying a holiday weekend. Well, that's a happy little text, isn't it? All kinds of good stuff happening in there, and may seem like a little bit of an odd text to pick, doesn't it? Uh, an archaic story about people disobeying, and but it's actually a well-known story about uh, one of the biggest failures of Israel when they're going between Egypt and the Promised Land, the Golden Calf Incident. And the reason we're going to study it is while it is a little archaic and a little odd and seems a little bit depressing and discouraging, um, it actually has a lot of lessons for us to learn. Or not, maybe not a lot, but it actually has some important lessons for us to learn. Uh, it kind of falls into, I think, two or three broad categories. One of which is we get to see what happens when we face trials in life, difficulties in life, and we do it in our own strength with our eyes full of our circumstances and the people around us instead of God and what happens when we do that. That's the negative side. But we also then see a contrast and see what happens when we face those same circumstances and same trials and do it instead in the power of the Spirit with our eyes full of God instead of full of man and living based on what we know instead of based on what we see. And really, what happens with this story is that the whole story ends up being a study in contrast. We're going to have two different settings, bottom of the mountain and top of the mountain, two different people, Aaron and Moses, with two different responses to crisis, complete failure and amazing obedience. And from their examples, both negative and positive, we're going to learn a little bit about how we should face crisis and face trials. But even more than that, we're going to learn about prayer. Now, it may seem a little odd to look through an Old Testament passage on idolatry and say we're going to learn about prayer, but that's what we're going to do. And, what, and where it's going to be encouragement to us is it's going to show us how a sovereign God responds to the prayer of his servants, the, the prayers of his children. And from seeing that, it actually is going to end up being a passage that I think we can come back to when we're struggling in our own prayer life and get encouragement from. So the way we're going to do that is we're going to go through this passage verse by verse, draw some lessons from it as we go, and then kind of conclude in the end talking about prayer. Before we do that, however, I think we need to sort of establish where we are in the story because we're picking up in Exodus 32. Obviously, Exodus is a whole big book full of narrative of what's going on with the Israelites, and we're jumping into the middle of it. So I think it's important to establish where are we in the story. As we pick this up, the Israelites are about five months out of Egypt. If you know the story of Exodus, what is it? It is the Exodus, it is the leaving of Egypt. They've been in, Israel's been in Egypt for 400 years. Some of that time was in slavery, if not most of it. God miraculously delivers them from it, and they're now making their way to the promised land. But they've been out of Egypt for about five months. They're camped right now at the bottom of the base of Mount Sinai. They got here about six to eight weeks ago, something like that. About six weeks ago, God gave them the Ten Commandments. Now, you might, we sometimes I think get confused on how the Ten Commandments worked because we tend to get it confused that God gave the commandments to Moses and the uh, stone tablets and then he brings them down. But when he actually, when God gives the Ten Commandments to the people, he comes to the bottom of the mountain and speaks it to them verbally. They all hear it, not just Moses. The experience is so terrifying to the people that they go to Moses after God does it and says, don't ever let God talk to us again. We don't ever want to experience that. 
It's unbelievable that we even live through it. Please, you go talk to God. Then you come back and tell us what he says. Don't ever let him talk to us directly. Moses actually says to him, you know, that's intentional. Moses wants, or God wants you to fear him so that you'll obey his commandments. That was roughly six weeks ago. Since that time, Moses has been on the top of the mountain. Now, we don't know this for sure, but based on what we know about what went on when God gave the Ten Commandments to the bottom of the mountain, very likely at the top of the mountain, there's all kinds of stuff happening as you look up there. It might even look similar to a volcano, probably thunder, lightning, smoke, fire, all kinds of stuff happening. And Moses has been up there for 40 days or somewhere around six weeks. So the people are starting to think, hey, we know what it's like to be in the presence of God. He's been up there a super long time. We thought we were going to die from just being in it for a short period. He's been up there for that long. I'm not sure he's coming back. The two main characters of this story, Moses and Aaron, the last time they saw each other was also about six weeks ago. And they actually were eating, and they took, the last time they saw each other, they actually ate a covenant meal together, literally in the presence of God. Because the Ten Commandments, when God gave the Ten Commandments, he said, this is my covenant with you, my people. It's not just, here's what I want you to do. No, this is my covenant. Because what he's saying is, if you abide by these rules, if you abide by these commandments, then I will bless you, I will keep you in the land, all kinds of positive things will happen. If you don't, then you won't stay in the land and all kinds of really bad things will happen. Well, after he gave that, in that culture, when you sealed a covenant, you didn't sign a contract together, you ate a meal. And that's how, you, that's how you sealed a covenant. So after he gave the covenant to the Israelites, he invited, God did, Aaron, Moses, and some of the elders part of the way up the mountain, and he allowed them to see the foot of his throne. And so they, they ate a meal literally in the presence of God. That's the last time that Moses and Aaron saw each other. Now, just so you understand, just to make sure that we define who the characters are, Moses and Aaron are brothers. Moses is the number one guy in Israel. He's the leader. Aaron's number two. So now Moses has been up on the mountain for these 40 days. Everybody else is down at the bottom. And we pick up our story in chapter 32, verse 1. And the first scene is we're at the bottom of the mountain. Okay, we all on the same page? Okay, I like the nods. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The people apparently looked to be panicking. Here's their thought process. We are out here in the middle of nowhere. We're out here in the wilderness. The only guy that has, the guy who's been leading us is most likely dead because he's been up there for so long, we don't know when he's coming down. And if you look up there and we know what it's like to be in the presence of God, the odds that he's alive are pretty long. And if he's gone, that means that we don't have our mouthpiece, we don't have our intermediary between God. So Moses has deserted us, God has deserted us, we need a God. We need to do something. Notice how they refer to Moses. You see that in that verse 1, this Moses? It's like they have gone from fear to having this irrational anger, and they're actually angry at Moses for being dead, is, is sort of what that is. You ever had fear turn into anger? I was thinking about this from the standpoint of like if you're a parent of a teenager, and they're out, and you don't know where they are, and you're worried sick, and then when they do show up, you go from being worried sick to wanting to kill them. That's kind of, I think, what happens here, 
right? It's fear turning to irrational anger. This Moses is gone. We don't know where he is. And then they do something which seems incredibly foreign to us, right? You would think they'd say, so Aaron, you need to come up with a solution. No, they, we have the solution. You need to make us a god. And it's a very bizarre thing to do from our standpoint. But you have to understand, where have they spent the last four centuries? They are coming out of a culture that was amazingly, or, or big-time polytheistic. And so the, the Egyptians had a god for everything. And so these people are, faced, are, are panicking. They go back to what's comfortable. And what's comfortable for them is, we need a god. We don't know where the god was that was with us. He deserted us, so we need something because we're, we're alone out here. And Aaron, you need to take care of us. Make us a god. Well, what's Aaron do? Well, Aaron does, of course, what you would expect a leader of Israel to do. He goes, wait a minute, guys. You can't do this. We just heard the Ten Commandments six weeks ago. What's the first two commandments? You shall have no other God before me. You shall have no graven images. We can't do this. Remember the curse that God came, that God pronounced with those first two commandments? That he pronounced, he cursed the people of the third generation of those that forsake him and hate him? Don't do this. I'm sure Moses is alive. There's no way God would have taken him up there to kill him. God's still here. Moses is still here. Have faith. Is that what Aaron does? No. Aaron folds like a cheap tent. Right? As a matter of fact, it doesn't even look like Aaron even puts up any argument at all. This seems like the most normal thing in the world, apparently, to Aaron. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. A God. Coming right up. So Aaron said, verse 2. Take the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. This is an interesting scene. By the way, apparently it's all men around Aaron. And for whatever reason, the men don't have to give up their earrings, just the wives, sons, and daughters do. The reason they have earrings, by the way, is when they left Egypt, God told them, I want you to go plunder the Egyptians. Go to the Egyptians and just say, give me everything you have that's valuable. And it worked because the Egyptians were panicked. And the Israelites walk out of Egypt loaded. I mean, they have massive wealth with them. We'll, you see this later if you read on in the book of Exodus. So Aaron says, I don't even need any heavy stuff. Just go get everybody pull their earrings out and I'll make you a god. What's sadly ironic about this is at the same time that he's taking up a collection to make this god, Moses is getting instructions on how to take up a collection to build the tabernacle that will enable them to worship Yahweh, their god. Well, the people do it. Verse 3, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Aaron later on, when Moses confronts him about this, will say, all I did was I took the gold, I threw it in the fire, out came this calf. That's all I did. Thus giving one of the worst excuses in ancient history, right? Maybe in all of history. Non-teenager non division, right? <laughs> Well, he does this and he says, and then Aaron made a proclamation. Oh, I'm sorry. Then the people said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, this is interesting. Notice they say, these are your gods, plural. Probably what they're doing is they're, they're not necessarily saying, this is our God instead of Yahweh, the God. This is a God along with him. And then what is also sad is they use almost the exact same terminology that God used about himself when he gave them the Ten Commandments. God said, I am your God who brought you up out of Egypt. 
Now they're saying, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This calf along with Yahweh, apparently. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow will be a feast of the Lord. Again, another sad irony. While Aaron is acting as high priest of the golden calf, Moses is on top of the mountain getting instructions from God on making Aaron and his descendants high priests in the tabernacle that's about to be built. Notice the last word of verse 5. Lord, as you notice, it's all in caps in your Bible. Aaron actually says, this will be a feast to Yahweh. This will be a feast to Jehovah, the true God. Again, probably pointing to that the calf is kind of an add-on, and we're going to worship everybody tomorrow, right? Well, verse 6, and they arose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Again, what Moses is getting instructed on how to do at the top of the mountain for God, they're doing down here to the calf. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In that word play is the meaning, is an inherent meaning that says immorality. This was a party. Not only are they engaging in pagan worship of a pagan deity, but they're sprinkling in all the pagan worship rites that includes the immorality that goes with it. The wheels have completely fallen, come off, essentially. They have just totally thrown out everything they heard six weeks ago with the Ten Commandments of the worship. You look at this picture and you say, the main person that you have to go to, I think, in huge disappointment is Aaron, right? Aaron is the number two guy. Aaron was Moses' mouthpiece when they went to Pharaoh for the ten plagues that miraculously delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. He had a front row seat to how God delivered them. He had a front row seat to everything that's happened since. Aaron, you would assume, is closest to Moses. He's been with Moses as Moses has done some amazing things since then, marching through the Red Sea on dry land. Different miracles that have happened since as God's provided them water and food at different points. Aaron has been there. And like we already said, the last time he was with Moses, he literally was in the presence of God, and that was only weeks ago. And yet here, Aaron doesn't just fold. Aaron joyously joins in and says, let me lead the worship. Let's go. And what you have to say from the standpoint of watching it is that Aaron acts based on what he sees, not based on what he knows. He forgets everything that he's experienced with God, everything that he knows with God, and all he sees is all these people around him, which probably weren't a friendly crowd that came to him. And he says, we got a problem. This is a solution. Let's go. Now, there's something else about this scene that I think is interesting to think about. And it kind of depends on your interpretation of Exodus 17, but we won't go there for sake of time. But likely, as this scene is going on, there is probably a river of water flowing through the camp. Stream, river, something like that. It is flowing from a rock. This isn't a river that's naturally there. It is a water flowing out of a rock. The reason being, when the Israelites got to this place, there was no water. They went to Moses and said, we have no water. What the heck's going on? We're all going to die. Moses goes to God and says, we're in trouble. We need water. God says, go to that rock, take your staff, whack it. I'm going to make water come out. That's what happened. 
And when you read that miracle, it's easy to think, well, that's just kind of a one-time thing. The water comes out, they go, everybody dips their buckets, gets a good drink, everybody's happy. But there are hundreds of thousands of people in this camp. They need water every day. So most likely, once the water started flowing, it kept flowing and has been flowing every day for weeks on end, which means that these people are engaging in worship for a God they had to make up because the main God they think deserted them. And they do it next to a water that the God they think deserted them provides for them every day. They probably got up this morning, washed in it, drank it, cooked with it, and then went and worshipped the pagan because that God had deserted them. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? And when you look at it that way and look at the whole text, you just go, what in the world are they thinking? What's Aaron thinking? How can they miss it that badly? How can they be that obtuse? Then you have to remember, well, wait a minute. Why is this story here? God includes stories like this in the Bible to show us our own heart. And nothing they're doing here are we incapable of. And from the standpoint of looking right at that water and saying, where the heck is God? Isn't it very similar to when we look right at the cross and we go, yeah, that's great, but where is God in some cases? Or in other cases, that's great, but I need more. I need comfort. I need health. I need everything, a workout life. See, we can, when our hearts aren't renewed, when our hearts aren't focused where they should be, we can end up being the one saying, up, make some gods for us, because as for this Jesus, we don't know what happened to him. We can be just as confused and misguided as the Israelites and Aaron are. Well, that's the negative part of the story. Now the scene completely changes. Verse 7. We go from the bottom of the mountain, now we go to the top of Mount Sinai. And whereas it was Aaron and the people, now we have the Lord and Moses. And, then you, and, and picture what has been going on. Moses has been basking in the glory of God for 40 days or somewhere around that neighborhood. He, he has been so nourished by God's glory that he hasn't, literally has not eaten or drunk anything. Still don't know if drunk's the right tense. I said that in the first service. Is it drunk? Eaten and drunk? It's not drank. He hasn't, he's not drinking anything while this is going on. He has been getting the ceremonial, God's been instructing him on the ceremonial law that goes around the moral law that he already has. He's been given instructions on a tabernacle that will allow God to, have, to, stay, to um, live his presence with the people. Moses has to be on a spiritual high that's unbelievable. Probably can't wait to go tell the people all these things. We are going to build a tabernacle so that God's presence can be with us all the time. And he's, already, he's told us how we're to worship him and how we're to do this and how to do that. It's going to be fantastic. He's been there with 40 days with God. And now the whole thing is about to change dramatically because God's about to throw cold water on the whole thing. Verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This has to shatter Moses because what this essentially says is, hey, guess what? Everything we've been doing over the last 40 days has just pretty much been rendered moot because you can't take any of this down to them. They All hell's broken loose down at the bottom of the mountain. 
they have violated everything that we've set up. So we're going to have to start all over from ground zero. Notice how God says it. When he says, go down, he says, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. Every time to now that God has talked about the people, he has said, my people whom I brought out. Now he says, "Uh uh-uh, they're your people, Moses. I look at sort of like two parents when your kid's, you know, acting up and you go, hey, you got to do something about your son, right? That's what God's doing here. They are my people, Moses. They're your people that you brought up out of Moses, and they have completely spit the bit. The wheels have come off, and it is horrible down there. And then he tells them explicitly what they've done. Then he goes on, and he says, verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen, and then notice, this people. They talked about this Moses. God talks about this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God doesn't mess around here. He doesn't sugarcoat what he tells Moses to start with. <laughs> doesn't break Moses in gently. Just says, hey, here's what's going on and you got a problem. And then he says, and stand back, I'm wiping them all out. I'm done. I've had enough of this. Been dealing with them for months now. They're gone. After they have violated my first commandment, my first and most important commandment, and I am no longer patient with them. By the way, you see this all through the Old Testament. Whenever Israel gets in trouble, it's from breaking the first commandment. The reason is the first commandment is the most important one. Have no other gods before me. You can't break commandments 2 through 10 without first breaking the first one, right? Because what is sin ultimately? Sin is saying, you aren't enough, I need more, I'm going to do this. So it's essentially saying, I need more gods than you. And whenever that happens, when Israel does that, as a matter of fact, if you go through 1st you know, and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, every king, his kingdom or his administration is always summed up on, did, did the people worship God alone or did they worship other gods? It's almost like, yeah, he may have done this, this, and this, but big deal, did they abide by the first commandment? And not abiding by the first commandment is what eventually gets both sides of Israel thrown out of Israel, thrown out of the promised land. So here we see God's response to when his children or when those that are supposed to be his children violate the first commandment. And he takes it very seriously. We can tend to rationalize our own sins sometimes, but when you see this, it kind of hits home how God sees that. That when we decide to say that you're kind of not enough, God. There's also no reason to think that he's bluffing here. Yes, Moses is about to remind him of the covenant that he's made with Abraham and the other patriarchs. But technically speaking, he could wipe them all out, start over with Moses. Moses is a descendant of Abraham, and he could start doing the whole thing and still be able to say that he made a great nation out of Abraham and that through that nation all the world was blessed. And Moses certainly doesn't think he's bluffing. Now, we know that, if you know the story ends... He doesn't do this, but there's no reason to think he couldn't have and that he didn't mean to. Well, now we see Moses rise up, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against whose people? Your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. Sort of like they're playing verbal ping pong with the people. Not my people, your people. Why, with, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? 
Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses does what God raised him up to do. It's interesting that this takes place at Mount Sinai because you know what else took place at Mount Sinai? The burning bush. The burning bush is where God called Moses to go deliver the Israelites from Egypt. Same place. And that, and that probably happened less than a year ago as we, as we are in this story. And if you know how that story goes, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush, he says, Moses, I want to send you back to the Egypt to deliver my people. And Moses goes, oh, no, you don't. I'm not the guy. I don't like speaking. I get tongue-tied. I know. I'm a shepherd. I don't want to go. And God says, yeah, you, you, I'm going to be with you. You can go. And Moses goes, no, no, you don't understand. I really don't want to go. He gets to the point where God finally says, you're going, and sends him. Then when Moses gets there, his first interaction with Pharaoh goes poorly. Everything happens wrong. He comes back to God and says, I told you this was a bad idea. I told you you shouldn't have sent me. I obeyed you. Now everybody hates me. It's all horrible. This is terrible. And Moses, basically, the first two interactions we see with him aren't positive. He comes across as a little on the wimpy side and kind of cowardly and saying, don't use me, use somebody else. And yet look at him now. This is, again, I, you know, this is months between those two things. We've come full circle. He started at Mount Sinai. He's come back to Mount Sinai. Only now he is the man that God raised him up to be because God has fashioned him to that. He has allowed the experience that he's gone through with God and the Spirit of God to turn him into the advocate for the people and the leader of the people that God intended for him. And by doing what he does, he saves hundreds of thousands of lives. And God has to watch what Moses is doing and think, that's a, that's a good and faithful servant. Well, as a result of what Moses says, we get to verse 14, which is a really odd verse. Because it says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God changed his mind. Now, if you know your theology, is it possible for God to change his mind? Well, by definition, no. But this says that he did. We'll come back to that. But maybe the best way to look at it is that God allowed himself to be convinced by a man that he had raised up for just that purpose. Moses does what he's supposed to do. So if you look at the contrast, think about the difference between Moses and Aaron. Aaron looks around, acts on what he sees, not on what he knows and what his memory is of how God acts. Moses, on the other hand, is faced with a crisis, the same crisis, essentially the other side of the same crisis, and instead acts on what he knows, filled with the Spirit of God. Aaron ends up failing because he walks by sight. Moses ends up having amazing obedience because he walks by faith. And it becomes an example for us on how we are to face trials, right? But even more than that, I think this passage teaches us about prayer. Now, you may be thinking, Rob, I am still not seeing the prayer angle here at all. Well, what is prayer? If you give a, the simplest definition of prayer, what is the simplest definition of prayer? It's talking to God, right? That's what prayer is. What's Moses do here? He talks to God. 
He does a little differently than us. We don't typically pray maybe on top of a mountain with fire and smoke and tablets and all that kind of thing in the visual presence of God, hearing God's voice, but it's prayer. And what we get to see is how prayer is effective. Now, there's an element of prayer, isn't there, that's hard to explain? See, if God's eternal, if God's all-knowing, all if God is uh, sovereign over all things, then how is it that James can say the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much? Because let's face it, hasn't God already predetermined everything before he ever laid the foundations of the world? And if that's the case, then what difference does it make if we pray? And the cynic would say just that, right? The cynic would say, okay, you can pray all you want. Pray, don't pray, whatever. God's already decided it. Nothing's going to change. But then we come to Exodus 32, and we look at verse 14, and it says, as a result of, God, of Moses' prayer, God changed his mind. God did something that's impossible as a result of Moses' prayer. Can we fully explain that? No. Is there a theological explanation for it? Yes. But on its face, the divinely inspired scriptures say something impossible happened as a result of Moses' prayer. And what I think we can say is, I can't explain to you how prayer works from the standpoint of God's sovereignty and everything else, but I have a black and white example that it does. And that's hugely encouraging, I think. Prayer did the impossible. And that means then that James is right. And I think the other thing then that we can look at and say, okay, well, what, what can we learn about prayer from Moses' prayer? What does an effective prayer look like? And I think there are three lessons we can take from it. And these aren't the three things you need to know about prayer necessarily, but they are three that I think we can draw out of this passage. Number one, fear and desperation equal prayer. Moses doesn't have a lot of time to respond after God gives him, basically throws the cold water that says, everything's gone to hell on the bottom of the mountain, right? So what does he do? He's forced to just simply pray. He can't say to God, okay, hold on, I'm going to run down, I'll take care of it, I think I can get this solved, I'll come back up and it'll be all right. He can't do that. God's saying, I'm wiping them all out, I'm doing it right now. So God has, Moses has to respond immediately. He has no choice but to pray. And you know what? There are times in our life where that's true. There are times where um, trials come in, crises come in, and the only choice we have is to pray. Either pray or fold. And there are times like this that end up forcing us to pray that we, that we end up praying more deeply sometimes, right? And we probably shouldn't be surprised with that being the case, that those kinds of trials force us to God, force us to pray, that God brings those into our lives very intentionally so that we'll do just that. I had a very, very small example of this about 2 o'clock this morning. About 2 o'clock this morning, I woke up in an absolute panic, my stomach turning, going nuts, and the thought in my head was, everything you have prepared for today is wrong. And it was just like this little panic attack of, you're, you've misinterpreted it, it's all totally messed up, it is going to be a dismal failure. I, I think that was probably just an attack. But at that point, I had nothing to do but pray. It was either that or try to get a hold of Tim Lucas Savage and said, you're on, right? But all I could do was pray. 
Now, I'm not comparing that to saving hundreds of thousands of lives on Mount Sinai, okay? But I'm just saying God brings these times into our lives so that we will know him better and then we will, and, and through prayer, know him better. The bottom line is this. Some, most of the time, people who have a thriving prayer life and who are familiar with the intimacy of prayer are most familiar with it are also the people who have been through the most crises and trials in their lives. It's why our prayer life should grow as we mature because we live through more and more of these times. Fear and desperation lead to prayer. Secondly, relationship and memory should inform our prayers. Moses has spent 40 days communing intimately with God. He also has, can fall back on his experience over the last five months of leading the Israelites and interacting with God. He also, unlike Aaron, remembers all that God did in Egypt and all that God said to the Israelites from the mountain. And all of those things inform his prayers. Do you notice that he knows how to approach God? He approaches God and says, remember your covenant with the people. His intimacy with God enables him to pray and pray immediately. And how do you get that kind of relationship? How do you have that kind of relationship? It comes from time. It comes from experience. It comes from living life together. If I met you for the first time today after church and then later on described you, described you to someone else as one of my closest friends, that'd be a little weird, wouldn't it? And a little creepy, maybe. And that's because to be close friends means there is an element of time. We need to communicate. We need to spend time together, experience life together. And the same is true of our Heavenly Father. Moses has done that, and out of that intimacy with God, he is able to pray effectively. If you are someone, and, and I, or if we have times where we think our prayer, prayer is hard, I don't know what to say, I, I, I want a good prayer life, but I don't know how to go about doing it. The first thing that we need to do is figure out how much time are we spending getting to know the God we're trying to pray to. Because intimacy and relationship breed prayer. Prayer gets better with practice. Faith is enhanced by a good memory. And to think that we can have a good prayer life without spending time with God is naive. So that's the second point. Relationship and memory should inform our prayers. And lastly, number three, God's glory should permeate our prayers. Do you notice what Moses does not say when he goes to God? He doesn't say, hey, the people really aren't all that bad. I'm sure they're just, they don't really mean this. Their hearts are in the right place. They deserve your mercy. He doesn't say that. You know why he doesn't say that? Because it's not true. They don't deserve God's mercy. These are the same people that three days after crossing the Red Sea said, okay, what the heck, what are we doing now? Where's God? Three days after miraculously crossing an ocean on dry land. He knows exactly what the hearts of the people are like. So what does he appeal to? He appeals to God based on God's glory, based on God's name. Don't do this because it will allow the Egyptians to disparage your name. Why are we all here? Why did God create? Why did God put the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil in the garden? He created for his own glory. He put that tree there so that he could redeem us, the most glorious thing that could possibly ever be done for his own glory. God is always motivated by his own glory, and we always benefit when he acts for his own glory because we're here and we're redeemed because of it. 
And so when we understand that, we should go through our lives understanding that our created purpose is glorifying God. And that then should undergird all of our prayers. We should follow Moses' example. That doesn't mean that we can't pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. But what it does mean is it makes us understand that our prayers as we pray, the temporary needs that we pray for are just those, temporary, while our relationship with God and our uh, responsibility to glorify him are eternal. What's the very first petition that Jesus tells us to make in the model prayer? Hallowed be your name, right? Well, what does that mean? What that means is, God, may your name be glorified in our lives and in the world around us today. Very first thing that Jesus tells us to pray for. With that as an example and watching what Moses does here, we should always approach God understanding that priority number one is glorifying you, not glorifying me, not making me happy, healthy, prosperous, and comfortable. See, at the end of the day, the ultimate purpose of prayer is not to make us happy or comfortable. It's to conform us to the image of the Son and enable us to live a life that glorifies our Creator. So those are the three lessons I think we can take away. Fear plus desperation equals prayer. Relationship and memory should inform our prayers. And God's glory should permeate our prayers. So see, it's not such an archaic, weird passage to pick to preach on Labor Day, right? Because we, there's both, it's both sobering and encouraging. Sobering in what you see Aaron and the rest of them do, but yet you can learn a lesson that that's what happens when we approach God based, or when we approach the crises of life based on what we see instead of what we know. Encouragement and seeing Moses' approach based on what he knows and not based on what he sees. And then ultimately, huge encouragement in our prayer life because according to Exodus 32, prayer can do the impossible. The effective prayer of a righteous man does accomplish much. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you that, we, uh, that you've put this story in that in some cases seems so foreign to our experience, but yet in others comes right along with us as we see that there are human beings just like us operating under crisis conditions just like we do. And I thank you for the lessons that it teaches us. Father, I would ask that we would be encouraged in our prayer lives and that you would use this, we'd remember this, and be able to say that I may not be able to explain exactly how prayer works, but I know that it does. And that I have a God who's commanded me to pray and pray often. And a God who wants personal relationship with me. Thank you that you love us that much. In Christ's name, amen.